Well, we're continuing in this study called Follow, and we're learning how Jesus made disciples. And we've been learning skills each week, things that we can do so that we can become disciples that make disciples. As we begin today, we're going to learn another skill. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your truth and the way it draws us into relationship with you. And we pray today that you would just use this time to help us discover more about who you are, what you've done for us through your son Jesus, and that we would commit to follow you. Father, bless our time of worship. May your spirit be the teacher today, the empowerer today in our lives. Lord, help us to know and and experience your presence and your purpose in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I printed a uh, sermon notes page. If you'd like to follow along, there's some fill-in-the-blanks there, plus all the scripture that we'll be looking at today. As we uh, begin, I want you to think about I want you to think about, some of us will be really reaching back for this. Maybe some of us uh, today are actually in it, but I want you to think about dating, all right? Dating. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? It's been a long time for me, but yeah, dating, I mean, it's like this process of two people coming together and getting to know one another, and they discover who each other really is. They discover, they go through this process of relationship building. It begins to get more serious. Do you remember when it got serious for you the first time? What, what, what kind of conversations did you actually have with the person? You know, maybe not just one conversation, but you had many conversations. And, and the question that begins to come up, inevitably, if it gets serious now, if it, if it really gets serious, if you really like this person, the question that comes up is this. Where is this relationship going? You know, and it's an interesting kind of fearful moment. I think it scares a lot of uh, people, especially guys sometimes, right? Get a little bit like, oh, commitment, right? Because that's, that's what the question is about. It's about commitment. And, and ultimately what, what happens here is that we have to define the relationship, right? And that's, that's, the, that's the term that's used today. You know, you got to have this conversation. We have to define our relationship. I remember when Susan and I first started dating many, many years ago. I won't tell you how many. A lot. A long time ago. And, and you know, we would, we would spend hours on uh, using this antique device called a dial telephone, you know, rotary dial telephone to talk to each other. Hours and hours we would spend. And I was discovering who she was, and she was discovering who I was. And we were growing in that relationship, and, and that discovery process had started for us. You know, I still remember her telephone number, 665-2862. That's it. I dialed that so many times and spent so much time on the phone, and I just think about how that, that relationship grew, and my heart began to melt and change, and I was hoping, hoping that hers was too. Because sooner or later, the conversation ends up here. It ends up in commitment. That we would commit to be in a relationship together forever. Now, something happens between discover and commit. Something changes inside of you as you begin to get to know a person. And you realize you have feelings for them. And what changes is simply this. You fall in love. 
You fall in love. You know that you have such strong emotional response and ties to this person that there is no way that you, want to, you would ever miss the rest of your life without them. You don't want that. You want them. It's that kind of relationship. It's that kind of love relationship. In fact, the greatest of all romance, we sang a minute ago, that Jesus is calling us into. He's calling us into this powerful relationship, and he wants us to discover fully who he is, and he wants us to commit to that relationship. It's crazy and interesting the way that God, though, then turns around and says, once we're in a relationship with Jesus, he wants us to be the people that extend that relationship to the world, to the invitation. You know, last week we learned, right, the second discipleship skill is to do the work of inviting. Inviting people to come and, and see who Jesus is. Come and discover him, what, what he's done for us, what he, what he wants to do in terms of loving us. And we, we as disciples, people who follow Jesus, are given this task of, of inviting people into relationship. Now, the people we invite, and, and really all of us probably, are in different places in their relationship with Jesus. Think of it this way. They're, they're in different places of discovering fully who he is. They're, let's put it this way. They're, we're all in a different place in terms of falling in love with Jesus. You see, the more you know, the more you know, the more your heart melts. Because he's done so much for us. And, and so, so when we look at the kind of people that come, that we invite, and the kind of people we are, we first realize that there are people who are skeptical. How do you help a skeptical person understand who Jesus is? Jesus gives us the task, doesn't he? Of, he gives us the task of being Jesus, being the hands and feet of Jesus, so that they might experience and discover who Jesus is. If you're, if you're here today and you're skeptical, if you have questions, we all do in this journey of a relationship with Jesus. If, if you're here and you've got questions, that's okay. We love that. We love the fact you're here, and we want to help you discover Jesus. And we want to help you fall in love with him. But you know, it's not just skeptics that we, we, we don't just have skeptics that come when we invite. We, we have people who say, yeah, I'm a believer. Any believers in here? All right, you can raise your hand. I don't see fish on your hand, though. Anybody know what that sign is? Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's a sign that the early Christians used to indicate, hey, I, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. You know, it, it used to be a few years ago, you'd see these on cars. You know, a lot of them. I, I, I don't see so many anymore. It's kind of crazy. You know, I think fish sales are way down for the back of cars. And I don't know what's going on in our culture or society today, but maybe it's because when you put a fish on your car, well, <laughs> it really says something. You have to be careful about how you drive, right? But there could be something else at work here. There could be something else going on in our world. And, and you know, see, it's more than putting a fish on your car. Believing is more than that. He's calling us. Jesus is calling us to something deeper. He's calling us to something deeper than just church attendance. 
He's calling us to something deeper than even just sitting by yourself and reading your Bible. He's calling you and me. He's calling people to be a part of his body of Christ on this earth to follow, not just to believe about in your head, but to actually follow him where he went, where he went he wants us to go. In terms of doing ministry and sharing love and sharing the message of Christ, Jesus is saying, hey, I want to define this relationship that I have with you. Are you a follower? Are you a believer? Are you a skeptic? I want you to be a follower. And Jesus is the master at defining the relationship conversationally. He asks great questions to people that say, okay, where are you in this relationship? Where is this relationship going? So let's look at one example of a question he used to define the relationship. His disciples had been uh, with him, and they'd been hanging out together, and Jesus had been teaching, and he asked this question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Probably the most important question that a human being can be asked, to be honest with you. Because how you answer that question, how how you understand who Jesus is, reflects your understanding of who you are. You see, when we realize what Jesus did and why he came, it says something about me. Peter doesn't always get the right answer because he's always the first to speak up among the disciples. In this case, he gets the right answer. He says this. He says, well, you are the Christ. You are the anointed king of God who's come to deliver us. Peter gets it right. Now, Their knowledge of Christ and his mission was not complete because Jesus hadn't completed the mission yet. He hadn't died on a cross. But Peter knew Jesus had a special claim, that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh, and that he came to do something very special. And, And what he does, Jesus does, again, it says so much about us and our need for a Savior. You know, it's really hard to get this message across, this message of who Jesus is. It's very difficult. Even among Christians, it's difficult to fully grasp what Jesus has done. Last week, there was a a new survey released by an uh, organization called Lifeway. And they put some statements in front of people, Christians, and said, do you agree with this or you disagree with this? This is one of the statements. The statement is, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So how would you answer that? Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. It seems very harsh and judgmental. It seems like not grace-filled or anything. It's just like, what, really? How do you answer it? If you understand why Jesus came, you know the answer. If you've been here for a baptismal service, we've talked about the fact that surely, surely, I was sinful, Psalm 51.5. I was sinful from the moment of conception. You know the answer. But the Christian world is getting confused on this because the culture is pressuring us to believe that sin is not the problem. And here's the answers that Christians gave. And you see that we have a major misconception and understanding of the purpose and work of Christ. That we're saying to ourselves, well, you know, it's not the, it's not the you know, 
small sins are okay. Sin isn't really the issue, you know, but it is the issue, he says. It's why he died on a cross. It's why he spread his arms and willingly went to the cross and was nailed on and took our sins away. And it's not the size of the sin, it's it's the state of our soul that's a problem. We're born with sin. And even the smallest sin is enough to separate us forever from God. Dealing with that harsh reality of the magnitude of the problem of sin leads us to the magnificence of Jesus and who he is. And if we grasp it, it melts our heart in love because we realize just how loving this act was for him to die on a cross. You see, knowing who Jesus is tells us who we are. And we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we have one who willingly and lovingly gave his life for us. Jesus doesn't stop there with his his define the relationship questions. It's interesting because he began to attract a crowd. And uh, we see this in Luke chapter 14. This crowd is following him. And he turns and he says something to them. Before we get to it, let's just talk for a moment about a crowd. You know, Jesus had been doing miracles and teaching, and and these crowds were following. And, you know, I'm sure that that was amazing to watch, right? Miracles and his teaching and all the things that he was doing. I mean, they didn't have, like, Netflix to binge watch or anything. So, I mean, it'd be great to go out in the evening, go on the hillside, listen, see the miracles. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. And, you know, if I was Jesus, I'd keep doing that, right? Keep attracting the crowds. Wouldn't that be the thing to do? You want more people, more people? And, you know, so, you know, hey, you've, you've seen this all? And Jesus would say, hey, go home, go home and invite some friends. You know, we like that word invite. So invite some friends to come back. Tonight we'll have a carnival. It's going to be great. You know, we want to invite everybody. We want everybody to be excited about Jesus and, and about what he's doing. We'll have a, this would be my thinking as a marketer, Right? Come back. We'll have, we'll have all-you-can-eat loaves and fishes. We'll have this very special booth called the, the water-to-wine booth. We'll have a dunk tank, you know, for Jesus. You can baptize him. Okay, I'm getting carried away. I know. Sorry. But sometimes we think about that. It's all about attracting the crowd, and Jesus says, No. It's okay. He was okay with the crowds to this point. He was okay for a while, but he says, no, it's now it's time to ask the question, to define the relationship. And he draws a line in the sand. And he says this, it's, like, it's not the size of the crowd that I'm worried about. It's the depth of the commitment of the heart to the relationship that I want people to have with me. It's the depth It's that commitment of the heart that Jesus is after, to fall in love with Jesus. So what Jesus does, he says, look, I'm going to define, I'm going to help you to the crowd. I'm going to help you define the relationship. I'm going to give you four ideas to think about, four important points. And I want to just walk through these four points because I think they're helpful for us today. And the first point that he makes is, is a very difficult one. It's very difficult to read in here. This is what he says. He says, look, you have a priority love relationship with me. That's the first requirement. He says, look, anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, 
you can't be my disciple. It's like, what? How does that work? Hate? First thing you have to realize is when Jesus uses the word, he's using it from a Hebrew perspective because he's Jewish. Hate doesn't mean as it means today. It means to love less. In other words, there's a priority for your love. You think, well, wow, that's kind of selfish of Jesus to think he deserves my love before I give it to anyone else, don't you think? Kind of selfish. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You don't understand something about my love. My love, if, if you are in this relationship with me, if you're discovering who I am, it will empower you to love the rest of your family and friends more than you could ever imagine. It will give you a supply and source, unending, for you so that you can love like you, you've never loved before. There's a priority, though. And he wants you to know that. He is first. Love him first, and then you will love your family. And you'll love them in a way that has truth. You'll love them in a way that brings the message of Christ. Because ultimately, isn't that what you want your love to do, is to bring people to Christ? Especially the ones that you care about in your family. He's looking at Jews who, who would be confronted with the reality of the Messiah, and, and probably some of the families would experience tension, don't you think? These families had been following the Jewish religion for a long time. And Jesus comes along and says, now I am the Messiah. Some family members would buy that, others wouldn't. How do you respond? But you don't want to just give up on that. You want to love them, but you want to love them in a way that they might see the truth of Christ. Maybe you've had a similar experience in your family. There's a priority to your love. Jesus is your first love. Jesus is our first love. And he says that so that we have the relationship with him, that we can really love others. Another verse in Matthew, Jesus says basically the same thing. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and uh, the great and first commandment. It's first. It's the priority. Because in that love relationship as we experience it, and that's why discovering who Jesus is is so important, then we have the ability to carry out the second commandment, to love neighbors, to love the people around us. So there's a priority. And now what happens to the crowds that are following Jesus? Guess what? They start to shrink. People are saying, wait a minute. Sounds too, too hard for me. Sounds too difficult for me. Jesus goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says, not only is a priority, I'm worried about a sacrifice. He says this. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, imagine for a moment that Jesus is saying this, and he has not yet been crucified on a cross. So this is a foreshadowing of his death on the cross and a call for us to present our lives as what Paul said, living sacrifices. And so really what, what Jesus is, is saying here is that he wants our life, all of it. And that's the only offering, actually, we can give him. It's just our lives. He says, here, I want your life. Be prepared to give it to me. He says it this way in Matthew. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you want to find your life? 
Do you want to find the life that you were meant to live? You have to lose it. You have to give it up, Jesus says. You have to be a living sacrifice. It's really the only gift that we can give Jesus is simply to say, here I am. Take me, all of me. Use me for your plan, for your purpose. Teach me love. Teach me forgiveness. Teach me how to live in, in, in a way that I would follow you in all things. So not only do we have priority, but we have this idea of sacrifice. The only sacrifice, the only offering that we give Jesus is our lives. And the crowds shrink again as they consider the cost of what that would mean for their lives. Because we in our natural flesh have things that we're holding on to, things that we think are important, things that, th things that we are looking forward to in the future and saying, this is where my life will go and this is what I want to do. This is the plan that I have for my life and I'd have to give all that up if I follow Jesus. At least I'd have to let go of it and see what God does with it. And so Jesus continues and he tells this little parable about the cost. And, and he says this, he says, look, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Which of you who are trying to build your life haven't considered the cost of building your life, of doing what you want to do, of reaching the goals that you want to reach, of having the kind of, of, of future that you're envisioning? You're, you, you have to sit down and you count the cost for that, don't you? He said, yeah, you, you don't start that journey until you count the cost. He says, otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it will be the, begin to mock him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And what Jesus is really trying to get at here is sometimes this is taken as just like good business advice, you know? Count the cost before you start the project. He's saying, you can't pay. You don't have enough to create the life you want. You don't know it yet. But if you try to do this on your own, you're going to fail. The only one that can build a life that you really want is Jesus, and he's already paid the price. See, we all think that we can plan and execute on a perfect future, and we all know if you've lived long enough, you know how hard it is actually. And we also know that once we get there, that we, also, we seem like, well, maybe it's not really what I want anyway. Jesus has already paid the price for the life that he wants to build in, in you, for you, that you might live and experience that. And so only God can pay the, the price only God can pay for what he wants to build in your life. Only God can build something amazing and magnificent that's bigger than anything you've ever thought or imagined. But see, that's kind of like, oh, I have to give up, don't I? And the crowds shrink again. I have to give my life for that. I have to let go of things. I have to not hold on so tightly to what I think is important. And give it to give it up, give my life up to Jesus. So there's this cost, but he finally says, Look, don't be deceived. There's a battle involved in this. You need to understand the alternative. And he tells this parable about a king that's going out to war to encounter another king in war. And he says, If, if you're going to do that, you want to first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet someone who comes against him with 20,000. There's a battle for your soul. And the enemy has legions of demons. 
And Jesus has sat down and he said, I've counted the cost. I know I can go into battle. I know I can defeat that enemy. What about you? You going to do that on your own? You going to face that army on your own? And he says, look, he goes on, he says, well, if not, I mean, then if, you, if the answer is no, you, then, well, what happens? You, well, you send a delegation and you ask for terms of peace. And this is what we do in a culture all the time. We just make peace with the enemy. We say, oh, it's okay. Live any way you want. It's all okay. And, and the temptation for us as Christians is, is to go make peace with the enemy instead of realizing that we're in a battle that has to be fought. Except we can't fight it. There's only one person. We can join our king as he fights. He's already deliberated. He already knows he can defeat legions of demons. But if we don't understand the battle, here's, here's what happens. Without Jesus, we're going to be tempted to make peace with the enemy. And that's not going to create the life that we want, I can guarantee it. And so Jesus is now speaking to a much smaller crowd, and he kind of caps all this off with the statement. He says, if you didn't catch it so far, therefore, if anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's like, really? What does that mean? To renounce everything I have? Does it mean I sell everything and give it to the poor? No, that's not the case. He's not saying that. He's simply saying, look, you can't build your own life. You can't fight the battle. I'm here for you. Give your life to me so that you can experience all that I have, abundant life now and forever. Jesus says it a little bit differently. He says in Matthew, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when you read those two together, don't you go, whoa, that doesn't sound so easy or light. But here's what Jesus is saying. He says, look, I want your life, but recognize I'm there with you now. I'm there to you daily to encourage you, to support you, to guide you, to direct you, to love you, to reassure you. You see, it's going to be a battle, and, and there is something to be built, but Jesus is saying, I'm there now for you if you're ready to give me your life. Commit. After you've discovered who I am, commit to this relationship of love with me so that I can, I can be there for you in these moments. You know, if we think about skeptics, people with questions, and, and believers, people who begin to understand who Jesus is and the, and the journey to, to following, there's two questions that come up over and over again, and, and that is, what, is I need to, what, what is it that I need to discover about Jesus? What do I have to discover about God and the church and his plan for my life? Lots of people are confused on that. I've illustrated that earlier. What is it that I need to discover, but what is it do I, where do I need to commit? Because you can't just know it. You have to commit to it. The only way you'll experience it is if you just take the step in faith and trust. And when you do that, guess what happens? He's there. And he, he supports you and he cares for you and, and, and you see that you can indeed follow. You know, as you came in today, I, you received our covenant, our church's covenant for membership. I want you to take it home and read it carefully. We're just trying to help people discover who we are, who Jesus is. But we're also saying, hey, commit to take a step. 
And our Jesus behaviors are on the, on the backside of the covenant. I want you to read them carefully. Study them and, and, and think about where do you need to commit. You, you, you may need more information. You may need to discover more of who Jesus is. But it's quite possible that you might need right now to commit. You say to Jesus, okay, I'm ready to take the step I know you've wanted me to take. And bring that covenant back next week if you're ready to, to declare that you're a follower of Jesus. And during communion next week, we will put those covenants before Christ, before the cross, and just ask God to bless us as we, as we live as followers. Jesus wraps up this whole section, and he says this. He says, salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I really love salt, especially on French fries. Anybody with me? Yeah, pretty good stuff. Salt is excellent. You know, I know we're not supposed to have it. I get that. But he's saying, look, Christians who are committed are salty. They flavor the earth. They flavor, they, they, they bring the, this, this taste of God into the midst of a broken and dying world. And he's saying, look, though, but how, if you lose your saltiness, if you're, not, if you're not committed, he's saying, if you're not being who I'm calling you to be, if you're not taking the steps and committing to them, you lose your saltiness. And what good are you? I mean, what good are we as Christians? How can we be God to the world? How can we show and lead people to God with our behaviors? See, here's the thing. See, if we lose our saltiness, if we don't commit to what we have discovered, and I've seen this time and time and time again in, in Christians' life, where here's what happens. They, they get excited, and they start to grow, and then they reach a point at where Jesus is saying, hey, I want to define the relationship. This is what it means. This is what change is going to happen in your life. They say, oh, I can't do it. You don't stay in the same place when you, say that, when you respond that way to Jesus. You start moving backwards because you're not trusting him. You've got to take the step. When he challenges you to commit, you've got to do it to experience his presence and continue to grow in your saltiness, your ability to affect the world. So, so he's wrapped up this, this, this entire presentation into this crowd, and he's, he's given them, them clear indication of what it means to follow him. And the crowds get, they get smaller. Jesus isn't concerned with the size of the crowd. He's concerned with the depth of commitment in our hearts, and that's for us, too. We want people who can be salt and light in this world. That's why we've been talking about this discipleship path, you know, this idea of we have this picture that Tony introduced last week. And we're trying to get people on the on-ramp, you know, so they can discover and then commit. You know, when you think of an on-ramp, what do you think of? I think about how dangerous it is to try to get on I-88 from Naper Boulevard. That's what I think about. Do you ever have that fear that, like, they're not going to let you in? You know, you're, you're, like, revving it up, you know, 55 miles an hour or more or whatever you drive, and you're going onto that ramp, and I was like, is anybody going to let me in? Are they going to let me on? So can I merge and be a part of all this? And that's what we need to do as a church. We need to let people on. Get them, get them on the on-ramp. Get them into the flow of what's going on here so they can discover. That's the next box. So they can find out who Jesus is. And that's why we have a class called Discover, so people can take that step officially. But it's more about them learning from us, our salty people in this room, the love of Christ.
But then, of course, it's about commitment, isn't it? It's about, hey, now it's time. Here's the step. Do it. Follow me. And so every one of us has to wrestle with that question all the time because Jesus is constantly asking questions to define the relationship, and he wants to do that with you right now. Simply ask, where is this relationship going? That's what he wants to do with me every day. So I pray this week that you would consider that question. I pray that you would look at that covenant and read it, consider it, sign it, bring it back if you're ready to take a step, whatever that step might be. You're not just content with believing that you want to be a follower. Pray that that would be at work in your life and in this church.